Well, good morning, church. It is so, so cool to be back up here again, so cool to be sharing the word with you. I consider it one of the highest privileges that I get to experience. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, first of all, hi. If you've never met me, my name's Nick. Uh, like Adam said, I used to be on staff here. He took care of explaining who I am a little bit, but just, just in case, uh, you know, in case to you, I've just been maybe a guitar player or somebody sitting in there. You know, they're letting anybody up here now, so whatever. <laughs> I'm going to jump right into our uh, series. Uh, I remember hearing the words, the word sola uh, when I went to Bible college. Um, the phrase is part of a collection of five phrases. You just saw them up on the screen. They were written and they were upheld by the reformers. Uh, during and since the Protestant Reformation, some 500 years ago. These phrases are distinctive doctrinal statements that are written about our salvation, about what salvation means, about how it's attained, about who it's attained from, and about how we find out all of that. So the question is, what purpose do they serve and why do we need them? Why would we take the time out of a year to set aside this series to talk about these solas? Sola is Latin for alone or only. And this is kind of how this all plays out. The purpose they serve is to bring us back to what's true, what's important, the only thing we need to know, things we need to know about salvation. And we needed them because like most things in life, when you add too many de details to something, when you overcomplicate something, sometimes you accidentally get focused on the wrong thing or the wrong practice or less important things accidentally become more important things. A great example of this, and probably my favorite example, is the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees had the laws from the Old Testament, and then they added a whole bunch of these like sub-laws to help them keep the Old Testament laws. Um, but they became so focused on keeping those sub-laws that they actually forgot the purpose and intent behind the original laws. I remember there, there's probably one of my favorite moments, and that you've, read, you've probably read this, but let me illustrate it a little bit. Let me try and bring it to life for you. So this man, uh, he's sitting by this pool, and uh, every day the pool kind of stirs up, and this miraculous thing happens where people go in, and they come out healed. And, but this man is disabled. He can't get into the pool, and usually by the time he's like almost in, almost on the way, somebody else has been healed, and his turn is kind of lost. So Jesus comes up to him on the Sabbath, which is supposed to be a day of rest, uh, and God himself says it's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's an important thing to note. Uh, and so Jesus goes up to this guy and says, do you want to get well? And he says, I do, but every time the water stirs, I go and I just don't make it and somebody else gets healed. And eventually Jesus says, uh, you know, get up, take up the mat. He was laying on a mat and, and walk. And everybody's a little bit mind blown because they're here for the pool. They're not here for Jesus. They're not here for some other healing. They're here because they see the water stir and somebody gets healed. And this guy who never even got in the water, he's been around for a long time and he's never made it, he gets up, he rolls up the mat and walks, which is mind blowing. Except the Pharisees who have been so focused on keeping these, these Old Testament laws and sub-laws can only focus on one thing. That guy who was just healed picked up a mat and started walking on the day of rest. So while everybody else is mind blown and excited and can't, realize, can't really fully comprehend what's going on, the religious teachers, the ones who should be leading people to God, to the mind of God, to understand and obey him are like, he just picked up a mat. Did you see that? 
on the Sabbath day. He's picking up a mat. Forget the healing. Look at this. This is wrong. We got to stop this. We got to go find that guy and put a stop to all of this. This is what happens when you come, become too focused on the wrong things. And so the purpose of Sola is to bring us back to the only things that are important. So let's go back in history. Let's go back to the period of the Reformation and find out what was going on and what caused the need to go back to these solas. So here's the first thing. Authority in the church, so people, the people who were in charge, were use, abusing their authority to turn the church into a money-generating empire. Rich nobles were literally paying for roles in the church so that they could abuse the power, abuse their influence, convince other people to give them money and make more money. Also, the Bible was not accessible in most common languages. So when you think about today, if, if I say something that totally doesn't align with scripture, you can actually go home and look it up and see if it was there. But most of those people could not because the Bible was not in their common language. It was also around the Renaissance era of history, and uh, philosophically speaking, this philosophy called skepticism started to come around, which uh, just exploded in European philosophy, and skepticism is all about, like, why. So when you see those people that are like, but why? It's probably skepticism. Why are we here? How do I know I'm here? Oh, I pinched myself. But did I really pinch myself? It just keeps going and going. But anyway, this was taking off, and it caused people to question why, what is church? Why do we go to church? What is church about? Do we even need church? Uh, by the Reformation, the printing press was also becoming available in virtually every town. So now people are thinking thoughts and they're writing them down, and those thoughts are becoming readily available to everyone around them. And the Reformers took notice of all this. They took notice of the abuse, uh, the deviance from what the Scriptures said, and they decided we're not going to just sit here and watch this all get worse. And so they redirected people back to the scriptures, uh, back to these solas, and taught them what was really in there, and they worked hard to make the Bible available in many of the common languages at the time, and that work is still continuing. So here's a review of the three solas that we've looked at so far. We've looked at sola gratia, which is uh, by grace alone. We said we are saved by grace alone. Grace is God's unmerited favor it's something we did not deserve. You cannot experience grace until you acknowledge the human condition. We've sinned and we've fall, fallen short of the glory of God. And then we've talked about sola fide, which is through faith alone. Faith knows and believes the story of Jesus and trusts in the person of Jesus alone for salvation. And then we talked about sola Christus, in Christ alone. We said this is the declaration that Jesus is our leader but he's more than that. He's our Lord. We lean on him for all things. We lean on him in all things. Jesus' righteous life, obedient death, and triumphal resurrection are the only basis on which God's justice is satisfied. He is the only one through whom we could be saved, forgiven, set free, and have a restored relationship with God again. So today we're talking about sola Scriptura, which is probably my favorite and probably the one I've most commonly heard, which means according to Scripture alone. So if grace means that salvation is a gift that we didn't earn and that we don't deserve, faith is the vehicle by which we receive grace, faith applies God's grace to our condition, then Christ is the only one, the person who came, lived, worked, and gave his life to appease God's justice and apply the grace of God to us, then scripture 
is the source of knowledge for how the person, life, works, death, and resurrection of Jesus bring about our salvation. Scripture is where we find the truth. And this is what I want to focus on today. Scripture is different than every other book in many ways, but the main significance we're going to talk about today is the fact that it's different because of its authority. You see, the reason we say according to Scripture alone is not because there are no other books or sources that tell us about Jesus. It's because the Bible, or Scripture, is the filter by which we test the validity of every other source. When Jesus appeared to believers on the road to Emmaus after he rose from the dead, it says that he talked with them through the Scriptures, which at the time would have been the Old Testament. He walked through Moses and all the prophets with them, and he showed them through the Scriptures that he was the Messiah and that he had fulfilled everything that Scripture said the Messiah would fulfill. And in Luke 24, 32, it says, They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the Scriptures to us? And so in this way, we give the Bible the highest authority for understanding of what is right and true. We say according to Scripture alone, because the Bible is our supreme authority for Christian faith and practice. Scripture is the be-all and end-all for truth. And I love how Matthew Barrett, a theologian, put it this way. He said, all other authorities in the Christian life, because there are other authorities, serve underneath Scripture, while Scripture alone rules over other authorities. So what does that mean? It means Scripture is above your pastor, so you filter what your pastor says through Scripture. Scripture goes over the media. What the media says about God or what's true, Scripture rules over everything. But then there's another question. Why? Why does Scripture rule over everything? Why do we give the Bible this authority, this supreme authority? Why do we let the Bible call the shots? Why not the pastor or the priests or the traditions or any other authority in Christian life? And the answer is because the Bible and everything in it came straight out of the mind of God. God himself authored it. I want to I show you this verse, and this is going to be our key verse for this morning. It's in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17. And as Adam mentioned, there's going to be a lot of scripture, so if you're writing handwritten notes, I'm sorry about your thumbs and your fingers and, and everything like that, but I also honor you because it's hard work to write that fast. So here's what the passage said. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you might be thinking, wait a second, you're preaching. Of course you're going to say, okay, well, the Bible says we should give it authority. Uh, yes, as a believer, I do have a bias. I believe that we should believe what the Bible says about itself, and I trust the Bible for that. But I don't just trust the Bible because of what it says about itself. I trust the Bible because it stands so far above every other holy book, every other religious text. And I'm going to give you three ways this morning just to support, before we give the Bible authority to tell us what it is, we're going to let other things give the Bible the authority that it deserves. So here's three ways we can trust the Bible. Number one, this is probably my favorite, textual consistency and uniqueness. 
See, you may not have realized, but the Bible isn't actually just one book. It's 66 books, all uh, woven together. And it didn't just have one author. It has somewhere around 40. There are some books that we debate who wrote them, but we know it's around 40 writers. And these authors lived in completely different contexts over a period of thousands of years, uh, spread over three continents. Many of them never knew each other. Many of them didn't know somebody else was writing about the same subject material. And none of them knew that one day it would all be compiled together. And yet the Bible carries themes and truths that are consistent and expanded upon on every page. So what do I mean when I say consistent and expanded upon? I'm going to show you one of the coolest graphics I've ever seen, and I'm going to explain it. This is a biblical cross-reference graphic. It's a collaborative work between Christoph Romhild, I hope I'm saying that right, and Chris Harrison. They sought to put together a data set of cross-references found in the Bible. They made a note of every linked concept, every linked location, and every linked person found throughout the Bible. And then as they were rendering the data, they decided, hey, why don't we make something beautiful, seeing as we're putting all this data together. So here's how it works. At the bottom, you'll see an upside-down bar graph that's gray and white. This bar graph represents all of the chapters in the Bible, starting with Genesis 1 on the left. The books of the Bible alternate between white and gray, and the length of each bar represents the length of its corresponding chapter. So in the middle, you'll see a really long gray line. That's Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And the colorful arched lines at the top represent the cross-references themselves. Each line represents one cross-reference, and the colors represent the distance of the verses apart from each other. Guess how many cross-references there are? And you might look at it and you might say, well, that's a lot of lines, you know, it kind of looks like the bottom of a broom. I don't know, maybe 200, maybe 400, maybe a couple thousand. No, there are 63,779 references. These are phrases and verses that interpret one another and they depend on one another to prove everything that came before. And it's amazing because no other holy book is this complex and yet this united in truth and in instruction. We also have external evidence. If you didn't know, archaeology has actually been confirming the historical accuracy of Scripture for a very long time. In 1846, before archaeology was even like a field of study, this obelisk, which is like a pillar, uh, was discovered in what's now northern Iraq. And this pillar had a writing on it referencing King Jehu, which was a Hebrew king who's written about in Scripture. And this archaeological find confirmed the portion of Scripture, and it only grew from there. As archaeology grew, so did the confirmation of Scripture. For example, in 1961, an inscription was found with the name Pilate. And this was the first time the name of Pilate was seen outside of the Bible. And now we know from other accounts, not just the Bible, that Pilate was a real figure. But the Bible told us first, and then we found it. In 1968, a first century home was identified as the actual home of the Apostle Peter. The ruins of the city of Jericho indicate a destruction that matches the narrative of the Bible as it's collapsed. 
And it just goes on and on. So the Bible went from this mythic story with characters we've never heard of, we've never been able to prove, to actual people who actually lived through actual circumstances. And the last thing, this might be my actual favorite. I don't know. I'm a person where, like, my favorite bounces all the time. If I'm watching Netflix, I'll have, like, a favorite character, and then the next episode, somebody will do something, I'll be like, oh, it's that guy now. But this is a great one, too. Prophecies and fulfillments. This is going to blow your mind. Approximately... 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible, and approximately 2,000 of those have already been fulfilled. And not like just fulfilled or like closely fulfilled. No, fulfilled exactly as the Bible said it would happen. Scholars and mathematicians say that none of the probabilities of any of those prophecies actually occurring has a higher probability than 1 in 10. And that's independently. So the odds of, somebody did the math for this, it wasn't me. But the odds of all 2,000 prophecies so far coming to pass collectively and exactly as the Bible describes them is less than 1 in 10 to the power of 2,000. Now, I've been out of math class for a long time. But the small number for that is 10, then with a little 2,000 up there. But what that really means is take the number, 10, and add 2,000 zeros to that number One in that are the chances that all of these prophecies were fulfilled exactly as described. That's something that only God can do. Here's one, just to whet your appetite. In Ezekiel 26, there's a prophecy against the city called the city of Tyre. He says, God says, I will bring nation against you, specifically mentions King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. It says the inhabitants would be slain, the city would be destroyed, and specific details scraped down to bare rock, and the pieces would be thrown into the sea. Out in the sea, she would become a place to spread fish nets. The coastlands would tremble at the sound of your fall. Their princes would step down, and the city would never be rebuilt. Here's some of the details of how it actually came about. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Tyre within a few months of the prophecy and conquered them. Later, Alexander the Great besieged Tyre, completely destroyed it, scraped the city down to bare rock, and threw all of the pieces into the lake to build a bridge to a nearby island. It was never rebuilt and instead became a popular fishing spot. And when Alexander conquered Tyre, many of the surrounding strongholds conceded to avoid facing the same fate as Tyre. 2,000 prophecies fulfilled to the letter and 500 left, unfolding every day. And many of these prophecies are about Jesus. He came from the lineage of Abraham, the lineage of Judah. There was a virgin birth. He would teach in parables. His ministry would begin in Galilee, that he would do miracles, that they would pierce his hands and feet, that they would gamble for his clothes, that he would be abandoned by those closest to him, that he would be mocked and abused, that he would rise from the dead, that he would conquer death, and that he would usher a new covenant Those are just some of them. So it's even more intense when you think about the fact that a few weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. But now a few weeks later, we're looking and saying there are actually prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the fact that this story wasn't just an amazing story, but it was an amazing story that was predicted by God a long time before it ever happened. Let's go back to our starting verse because I really want to spend the rest of our time camping there. Now that we know that Scripture actually deserves the authority that we're going to give it, it can be allowed 
to tell us about itself. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 tells us, first of all, that the Bible is God-breathed. What does God-breathed mean? It means inspired by God. So we actually believe that the Bible was written by God through humans. Well, how does that work? Well, here's the best way I can explain it. God, without turning people into robots, ensured that they would write exactly what he had in mind for them to write. Now, again, they were not robots. They wrote as free, thinking, feeling human beings, which is why it's so relatable, because you can feel all of their emotions and their experiences as you read. But yet, God worked through their personalities, their backgrounds, their educations, and their experiences to enable them to record his divine truth. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter put it, puts it this way. He says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is God-breathed. What else does Scripture tell us about itself? It says, The Bible is useful for teaching which means it imparts important information and knowledge and instruction and wisdom to us. So here are some of the things that Scripture teaches us. Number one, it teaches us who God is. This is the part where I'm going to rapid-fire some Scripture at you. You don't have to write them all down. You can save the version notes, or you can write down references, or you can just enjoy it. 1 John 1, 5 teaches something to us about God. It says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. These are some of the verses that tell us who God is. There are so many more than this, but here's just a little bit, just to whet your appetite. The Bible teaches us who God is. What else does it teach us? Well, it teaches us who we are and what we need. And I like to call this the gospel. So let's walk through it briefly and then move on. So in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in God's image, which means we're relational because it said, let us make man, because God is a trinity. He's three in one, and in the same way, we have relationships both with God and with each other. We're creative beings. Now, that doesn't mean we make something out of nothing like God did, but we take his creation, and we create things out of it. We're ruling in the same way that God is sovereign over the world. He gave us a sense of rulership over the earth. Romans 3.23 it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there was a problem. We sinned, and the image of God in us was corrupted, 
and our relationship with God was damaged. Through sin, we got ourselves into this situation that we couldn't get ourselves out of. And by rights, we deserve the punishment of death for our sins. But then there's hope, because in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the solution to sin was a perfect sacrifice. And this perfect sacrifice was Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which meant that that grace that we never deserved could then be applied to us. And it's received by faith. So Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then when we're saved, when we receive the grace, when we receive it by faith, it actually causes us to turn around. Last week, Adam talked about the fact that, uh, that the important thing is our posture. Where are we heading? I could be over here and super far from God, but as long as my posture has been a posture of repentance, of turning to face him, I'm on the right path. And a good verse for repentance is Luke chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. It says, Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It also teaches us how to live as redeemed followers of Christ. So then once we come to know Jesus and we want to live like him, we want to know what to do after that, the Bible tells us what to do. We can let God influence our lives and our actions instead of the world. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, there should be a distinct difference in the way we lived before we followed Jesus and in the way we live now. Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24 says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. So pre-Jesus, with regard to that, We were taught to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, which means the old me, the me that I was before I knew Jesus, has been laid down with Christ, and I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Bible's also useful for rebuking and correcting. Now, a lot of us kind of cringe a little bit when we hear the word rebuke because it means something's wrong. But that's exactly what the Bible was meant to do. So the Bible rebukes us by pointing out what's not right, and the Bible corrects us by showing us the path towards a right heart and right living. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, it says, He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross, He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And if you don't know anything about the refining process for precious metals, the way that it was done is they would boil it to a really, really hot liquid metal. And what would happen when they did that is all the dross, which is like impurities, all the rubbish, all the stuff you don't want in this nice precious metal, floats to the top. And then they remove it out of the precious metal And they would repeat this over and over and over. And they would know that the metal is pure when the person who is cleaning it can see their reflection. 
Isn't that a beautiful picture? In Galatians uh, chapter 2, actually, I'm going to skip that. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus pointed out, uh, Jesus had a habit of correcting and rebuking, if you didn't know. But he pointed out that many Jews would go and do their good deeds instructed to them by God, but they would do it in public, and they would do it on purpose in public so that other people would notice and think highly of them. But Jesus rebuked that kind of practice because there was a wrong motive in mind, the attention of other people. Instead, he corrected us by pointing out uh, to keep their good deeds secretive so that only God knew, and then the reward from God would be greater because there was no other motivator behind the good works that they were doing. And then the Bible's useful for training in righteousness. Now, what does that mean exactly? How do you train for righteousness? Well, the same way you train for anything, discipline. And Pastor Adam has shared about discipline many times before, uh, but I want to highlight a few things that he shared that really brought clarity to my own life and my own habits of spiritual discipline. He said that a delight in discipline will take you where desire can't. I'm sure you've heard that one. Uh, But think about it this way. Let's say you want to start going to the gym. I remember the first time I went to the gym, the first time I tried lifting weights. And the first thing I did when I got home, I went straight to the mirror, I pulled the bicep up, and I went, I think I see a little change there. But that's not exactly how it works. It's not that fast. The point is, you don't see the results always, right away. The motivation has to begin internally. You have to have this dream for where you could be and discipline yourself with that dream in mind. And then you put your head down and you do the work. And maybe before you see some visible results, you actually start feeling better. You get to sleep easier or you have more energy. You're not as tired all the time. And that motivates you. And then maybe you notice some visual change and then it motivates you a little bit further. And then further on, somebody else notices something and says, hey, you're getting really fit. This is great. And then it motivates you a little bit further. You end up delighted by the results, but you know that the results came from the discipline when you couldn't see any changes happening. And the same can apply to our discipline to give our attention to God's word. First, we have a dream. We have to ask ourselves, what would it actually look like if I went through scripture? What would it look like in my life? What would it look like in my actions? What would my spirit be like? What would the lives of people around me look like? How would they be affected if I read God? read God's word. So then you start disciplining yourself to form Bible reading habits, maybe a devotion in the morning or evening, maybe a a few verses here and there. And it's hard at first. Just because something is good doesn't mean it's easy. But then as you protect your Bible reading time, as you protect your devotional time, as you become consistent, it becomes easier. And then you notice those little changes in your life. Maybe you become a little calmer. Maybe you're not angry as quickly Um, maybe the people around you don't annoy you as much as they used to. And that will motivate you to stay consistent and to protect that time. Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so the first question when it comes to discipline or training in righteousness flows out of this verse. What do you want to harvest? Maybe it's lower stress. Maybe it's a more solid relationship with God. Maybe it's a more sound mind, more wisdom. Maybe you want to trust him more. Maybe you want to have better character. If you want those things, then discipline yourself to get in God's word and learn to know and do what it says. 
But 2 Timothy 3.16 doesn't just explain that the Bible is God-breathed and useful. It's not just useful for the sake of being useful. The Bible actually serves a very specific purpose for us, and that purpose is to equip us. God gave us scripture to equip us. The rest of the verse says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And thoroughly equipped means complete or fully furnished. I love those imageries. When I think of complete, I think of someone who is preparing for war. You know, they go to their training, and once their training is complete, they can be sent to their assignment. So when we allow scripture to equip us, it prepares us for God's assignment for us. And when I think of perfectly furnished, I think of a home. I remember when Megan and I had our viewing for the apartment that we're in now, and it looked so different then than it does now. We had to go in, see all these empty spaces, you know, nothing in the living room, nothing in the bedrooms, and, and imagine what it would be like when it was fully furnished and useful for a purpose. When we allow scripture to equip us, it prepares us to be used for God's purposes. And I don't know about you guys, but I need equipping. I want to be equipped. I want to be filled to overflowing readiness to be used for God's assignment, for God's purpose in my life. But if that's what I really want, then I need to be changed from the inside out, as Romans 12:2 said. And I need to be prepared for the task by intaking the training of Scripture so that I can do God's will. And 1 Timothy 2, 4 says that God's will is that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of him. So God's will is twofold. Number one, that I would be saved, that I would come to the knowledge of him. But then number two is that I would use the rest of my life to help others come to the knowledge of him and to help them become saved. And you come to the knowledge and salvation of Jesus through his word. You see, everything in scripture before Jesus points to Jesus. After sin entered the world, God prophesied that a man would come who would crush the head of sin, Satan, and death. And that prophecy was pointing to Jesus. In Exodus, there's this symbolic Passover lamb. Who, and if you put the blood over your doorpost, then you would be saved from destruction. You fast forward. On the Passover, they had the first communion. And Jesus explained that he was the Passover lamb. No more do we have to do that. Jesus did it once and for all for all of us. In Leviticus, there was a great high priest who would oversee the priests and leaders. He would communicate with God. He would prophesy, and he would offer sacrifices of atonement for the people. But here's two really cool fulfillments of the high priest that Jesus fulfilled. Number one, the high priest was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest could go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat or the throne of God. By doing so, he would symbolically atone for the sins of the people. And then when Jesus came, whom the, the New Testament refers to as the great high priest, Jesus spilt his blood on our behalf. And not only were our sins atoned for, but this dividing curtain, and we've talked about this before, but this dividing curtain in the temple that symbolized the great divide between man and the presence of God was torn, which indicated that the ultimate sacrifice had been made and we could all have an intimate relationship with God. And here's a cool second one that a lot of you probably wouldn't know, but I've been reading through the Old Testament a whole bunch, and I came across this, but whenever a high priest died, anyone confined to a city of refuge for accidentally taking somebody else's life was granted freedom. 
And this is a crazy parallel to Jesus because he gave his life to set us free for his sins and we were only set free when he lost his life. And I could go on, but each book of the Bible before Jesus highlights something forward to Jesus. You'll have to read it to find out the rest. But guess what? Then when you read the New Testament, it tells you about Jesus and then everything after that actually points right back. In Matthew, it talks about Jesus as the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the suffering servant. In Luke, he's the son of man who felt everything we feel. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the savior of the world. And again, you'll have to read through to find the rest. But the point is we hold firmly to the doctrine of sola scriptura because it places necessary supreme authority on the scriptures. And the reason it does that is because scriptures are the only place where we can come to the full knowledge of Jesus, where we can receive his saving grace by faith, where we can enter into a full relationship with him and where we can walk in new life in him. And the scriptures are the best place to become equipped for our assignment, which is to make him known to everyone around us. I hope you can see that I'm really driving the importance of scripture today because I know how important it is. I've walked through reading scripture for most of my life and I've seen it affect me and the lives of people around me that I want to be like because guess what? They look like Jesus. And I know that it can have the most incredible impact on your life as well. Which leaves me with one question. I know I've given you a lot to process today, and I'm going a little bit long here, but here's what I want to answer finally. How do we read the Bible and get what we're meant to get out of it? And I'm going to give you four simple things, but they're not so simple sometimes. Number one is read it. Because if you're anything like me, you will at least have seasons in your life where the Bible becomes a decoration, where it looks really good on your nightstand, or it feels like a brick under your pillow. But if you don't open it, you won't get the things that God has set aside for you in it. You have to open it. Read it daily. Start small and see where that leads. Maybe read a few verses or a section in between headings or a chapter. You decide, but the important thing is get in there and get in there every day. Number two is study it. Studying the Bible is about going deeper. And sometimes when you just read the Bible, you can get things, but you don't always understand all of it. This is where other material can come in handy. See, when I'm studying the Bible, I have all these resources around me, some as websites, some as old books I've purchased. Um, but the purpose of them is that they all give me helpful aspects of information. But the most important aspect of information that you can get when you're reading the Bible is context. So find things that help you get the context, because context sets the scene to understand passages of Scripture. Context tells us who wrote the book of the Bible? You're going to realize this feels a lot like a book report because it's very similar. Context tells us who wrote the book. They tell us who they wrote it to. It tells us when they wrote it. It tells us what was happening to the recipients of said book. And then it tells us the author's purpose for writing it. So for example, I'm going to try and do this really briefly because I know I'm going a little bit long. But in 1 Corinthians 13, we have this chapter. A lot of us know it. We hear it a lot around weddings. We call it the love chapter. It's the famous wedding chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. Let me go through the context with you a little bit to help you understand it a little deeper. Paul wrote this section of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth because he had taught them about spiritual gifts, except they accidentally got 
again, distracted, and started forming a hierarchy. So it was like prophecy is better than gifts, and gifts is better than this, and this is better than this. And so Paul was writing it to remind people to earnestly desire the gifts, but that there was no hierarchy between them. They were all important, and they were all equal, and they were all necessary. And at the end of chapter 12, going into chapter 13, he says, but let me show you a way of life that is best of all. So he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he says, you guys are actually causing division by pursuing the things that God has for you, so let me show you the right way to do this. Love is the right way to do this. So what's the most important spiritual gift? It's the one with love motivated behind it. Is this passage still true and useful and, and acceptable for weddings? Of course. But there's a deeper meaning that you miss if you don't dive in and study it. The last, uh, sorry, the third point is to apply scripture. Don't just read it and do nothing with it, but actually apply it to your life. James 1.22 says, but don't just listen to God's word, do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. James says that reading it and not putting it into practice is like walking up to a mirror and seeing yourself and then walking away and forgetting what you looked like. What purpose did the mirror serve if you immediately forget? And likewise, what does reading the Bible serve if we don't do anything with it? So we need to start actually practicing the things that are read about in Scripture. And then the fourth thing is share it. 1 Peter 3.15, leading up to this verse, Peter says, don't worry about people who threaten you or who hate you for doing what is right. Because the reality is, when people see a change in you, they may not always like it, especially when they find out where it comes from. But in verse 15, Peter says, instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. The best way to test your knowledge of something is to see if you can help someone else understand it. Where do we find the reason for our hope as believers? All throughout the Bible. Someone, so when someone asks you why you live the way you live or why there's something different about you, prepare yourself to relay what is in the Bible as your reason. I want to ask you something this morning, church, because I don't just, again, want to teach and have us do nothing with this. But can we actually do this? Can we not just hear that scripture is important, but can we actually open it? Can we discipline ourselves to form habits around it? Can we pursue the things that God gave us because he wants us to know them? Imagine how it would strengthen our church if we all had a deep understanding of the scripture. I think one of the most important things to our pastors, to our leadership, is that when we go home, we go beyond what we hear for 35, 40, maybe 25 minutes on a Sunday morning. Pastor Adam, I know, wants us to go home and test it to see if what he said was true. There's no end to the benefit of knowing and living out Scripture because Scripture alone is our supreme authority for Christian faith and practice. And it points to Jesus on every page because Jesus changes everything. Do you agree with me this morning? So here's how I want to close this morning. We've already been singing a lot of faith formational songs, powerful songs that tell us things about God, helps us form our set of beliefs around who God is. We're going to sing this one last formational song this morning called King of Kings. 
And I love it because it hits so much of our faith in one song. And it's not too, too, uh, too hard to follow either because this song unfolds as a story, the gospel story. And it, just like the Bible, points to Jesus the entire way through. So as we sing this song, let your spirit focus on worshiping the King of Kings, who alone is our Savior, who saves us by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to Scripture. And next week, we'll dive into the last sola, which is for the glory of God alone. I want to invite you to stand. And before we sing, I would just like to pray with you. God, I thank you for your word. It's so powerful. God, when we give it the authority it deserves, we know everything we need to know about you, about our life, about our purpose, and about our future. God, I pray that you would give us a curiosity about the Bible. Give us a hunger, a desire to open it and to read and understand the things that you've put inside. Help us to see Jesus on every page as you reveal him to us. God, some of it, some of us have been reading it for a long time, but don't let us lose our sense of awe just because the Bible might be familiar to us. And God, some of us might be opening your word for the first time, so I pray for clarity like never before as we read and as your spirit speaks to us. I pray that your word would come alive as we take it in. I pray that we would be hearers and doers of the word. And I pray that we would be strong in it, help us to retain it, help us to memorize it, help us to know it, to live by it, and to share it with others, that they would gain the same hope that we have. Jesus, we believe and we've seen that you change everything. So lead us to your word and change everything in us to become more like you for your glory. Amen. Let's sing together.